0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: It was a filthy night to be at sea. They were taking such a pounding in the waves that neither Bob Carlyle nor the rest of the crew of the cargo ship, the Jane and Anne, got any sleep. They could see the lighthouse shining brightly on the coast. It was a terrible temptation to them. Though they sorely wished they could get to dry land, they knew they had to keep the ship away from it. The easterly wind was blowing so hard to shore that they would have been dashed to pieces on the rocks if they'd tried to make landfall. Dawn broke and to general relief, the ship was still in one piece. The day was clear and they could see the nearest safe haven, Sunderland, on the northeast coast of England. But the waves were still wild and the wind still howling. They still could not risk a run for shore. The crew did their best to keep the Jane and Anne away from the coast all morning. It was no mean feat of a creaking sailing ship in a gathering gale. Despite the fury of the elements Bob Carlyle was calm. He was an experienced sailor and he knew how to handle himself. And one blessing was that the whipping wind had briskly cleared the hangover he'd acquired after days of hard drinking in Hamburg, where they'd loaded the ship with wood before setting sail straight into the storm. The smell of the cargo of herring that they'd taken to Hamburg, however, was not so easily dismissed. Carlyle and the rest of the crew were reassured by the steady demeanour of their captain, Mackay. He knew what he was about. After a lunch that nobody could really stomach, Mackay went down to his cabin, dressed himself in his best suit, sat down and wrote a letter to his wife and popped it in his jacket. He placed his watch in his pocket, some rings on his fingers and his purse in his waist belt and then he returned to the deck where he delivered a do-or-die speech to his men before taking the wheel. Now boys, he said,
2: you'll either have to go in or go to pieces at the back of the pier. Set the square
1: sails and we will run for it. The crew jumped to it, the square sails were set, the fore and aft sail stowed, and another hand helped Mackay to keep the wheel firm. The ship hurtled towards Sunderland, and the crew could see thousands standing on the pier like statues watching the drama unfold. The cheers were louder even than the howl of the wind when the Jane and Anne got safe within the pierhead. Not for the first time, Bob Carlyle had just received deliverance from a watery grave. From History Extra, this is the tiger tamer who went to sea. The amazing life of Bob Carlisle, Victorian sailor, showman, and sportsman extraordinaire. I'm David Musgrove, and I'd like to introduce you to Bob Carlisle. This is episode two, Sail, Steam, and Stormy Seas. That dramatic account of the close call near Sunderland... With a captain seemingly ripped straight out of the Imperial Victorian playbook of starched bravery in the face of adversity, comes direct from the pages of Bob Carlyle's own autobiography. Though I did take a little bit of license with how long his hangover might have lasted from Hamburg. That event took place in 1875, but when we left Carlyle at the end of episode one, he was only 16 and hadn't yet found his sailing boots. So we need to backtrack almost a decade to 1866 and go to the port town of Queensferry, a little to the west of Edinburgh, on the Firth of Forth. It was there that the cocky teenager presented himself to the Royal Navy and asked to volunteer on board the HMS Trafalgar. Let's hear his own words about it.
2: In the distance lay the ship, with two rows of heavy guns and light guns on her spar deck. Sailors were running about barefoot, and I saw a man in a brass-bound suit, cap and badge, who I afterwards found was Mr Stanley, the carpenter, a jolly fellow and a fine specimen of a navy man. On asking for passage to the ship, one of the men asked what I wanted to do there. I want to join the ship. All right, my boy, you will see the coxswain there. Going to the person indicated, a weather-beaten tar I repeated my request, which elicited the prompt rejoinder to get a rope and hang myself first. "'Come on, then, we're going,' he added. And then, safely seated, I was quickly pulled across the intervening water. We were soon alongside the ship, which to me was indeed like a floating castle. Having reached the gangway, I addressed myself to the master-at-arms and the ship's corporal, who brought me before the first lieutenant." This officer asked me several questions, after which I was sent off to the doctor for examination, and after successfully passing him, two papers, one for obtaining my parents' written consent, and the other for a written certificate of character from two households, were handed to me. I was also told to bring a copy of baptismal certificate.
1: So, that, apparently, is how you got into the Victorian Royal Navy. I wanted to check how accurate that depiction was. So I put in a call to Dr. Martin Wilcox, lecturer in history at Hull University and a specialist in the topic.
3: The Navy was really at that point moving away from the old style recruiting system, if you like, of the 18th century. Really up to to nearly this period, you didn't join the Royal Navy as a common seaman officers did and the relationship is different but common seamen joined a ship's company rather than the royal navy and really there were no checks at all in the 18th century that obviously during wartime they were desperate for manpower by this point they're trying to move away from that the big problem with that sort of very casualized recruiting system that system of hire and discharge if you like is that it really depended on the press gang in wartime to get people into the service quickly and by the mid 19th century that's politically not acceptable so the navy starts to move towards engagements for a fixed period of time rather than just for a a ship's commission and then finally in 1853 continuous service comes in which is the system that he's engaged under he has to obtain the permission of his parents and also he has to have a certificate of good character the navy's very very resistant to having criminals on board but I mean, it's from two households, it's not a particularly high bar to pass. So he doesn't quite walk into it in the way that would have been possible 50, 60 years before. But nevertheless, yes, it's, it's relatively easy to get into it at that stage. And the Navy has periodic serious shortages of manpower, where they really are not interested in, in imposing strict conditions on people coming into the service.
1: And what about this ship, the HMS Trafalgar? Surely that must be one of the last wooden sailing ships. Carlyle's description makes it sound all very Napoleonic era to me. In fact, he even describes an old fiddler on the deck playing a tune that the sailors were dancing to. And there is a lot of chat about hammocks in his biography as well. This is all a reflection of a bygone era, isn't it?
3: In a sense, Trafalgar is obsolete, and obviously so, because HMS Warrior has been launched in 1860, the the world's first all-iron warship, and the future clearly by the time Carlisle gets into the Navy is iron steamships. But the last wooden ship of the line, HMS Victoria, is only launched in 1859. And these things continue to serve for for quite a long time afterwards. And actually Trafalgar, which was an older vessel, it had been launched in 1841. It had had auxiliary steam engines fitted in 1859. So presumably at this point, they see it as an asset that's still worth investing quite a significant sum of money in. The point really is that iron and steam propulsion to a lesser extent, are relatively new. Iron hulls, I mean, clearly in merchant shipping, they're starting to come in from the 1840s, but there are concerns that they will shatter if they're hit by gunfire. So the wooden ship remains the sort of preferred choice for the warship for quite a long time afterwards. And then steam power, well, in the 1860s, the the compound steam engine, which uses steam twice, is only just coming in. Before that, engines are quite reliable enough by the 1860s, but they are very inefficient. So the sailing ship is not in any sense dead in the 1860s, and it's not until the 1870s that the Royal Navy launches its first large warship without any sailing rig at all. That's HMS Devastation.
1: There is a record of Carlyle's continuous service engagement in the Royal Navy. It describes him as boy first class, and notes that he signed up as a volunteer in August 1866. And then his engagement ended in 1868. He surfed for just one year on the Trafalgar, and then for another on the HMS Duncan before he managed to get his engagement cancelled and leave the Royal Navy. That seems like a surprisingly short length of service to me. Martin Wilcox guessed that he probably bought himself out. Where might he have got the money for that? We'll see in a moment. Before we leave his Navy service record, there's one more interesting thing. The Admiralty deemed it necessary to have a physical description of its sailors taken down. And from that, we learn that Carlisle was five foot four, of dark complexion and with brown hair and brown eyes. Also, he had tattoos – an anchor cross on his left forearm, and another anchor on the back of his left hand. I asked Martin Wilcox for his thoughts on those tattoos, and what they would have said to both those in and out of the Royal Navy.
3: It tended to be associated in wider British society with sailors and criminals, both of whom were groups of people with obvious moral difficulties, if you like. It had connotations, at least some have argued, of sort of slight savagery, primitiveness. The idea was that tattooing as a practice had been brought back to Britain by sailors who had contacted primitive, and I put that word in inverted commas, primitive people. So tattooing was seen as problematic. It was seen perhaps as a sign of degeneracy, deviance, vice. And obviously sailors did have a rep- for indulging in all of those things. So, yes, whilst it was acceptable in the Royal Navy, it would have marked him out as a little bit unusual in wider society.
1: So, we've got a tattooed teenager taking his leave of the Royal Navy after a very short stint. It's one of many regrets that Carlyle professes to in his biography. But it was far from the end of his sailing career. Before the year was out, Carlyle was at sea once more, but this time in the merchant fleet. He'd signed up for a voyage on the SS Leaf, the destination, America. Let's take a moment to reflect on the global situation at the time. It was just three years after the end of the American Civil War, which ran from 1861 to 1865. We tend to think of that conflict mostly in terms of slavery and emancipation, but it also had a specific economic dimension for Britain. Cotton. Before the war, America supplied 80% of the cotton that Britain needed, but during the conflict that trade pretty much dried up because of a Union blockade on Confederate ports from where the cotton had previously been shipped, and also because the Confederate states themselves had placed an embargo on cotton export, with the expectation, unfulfilled, that Britain would recognise Confederate independence because it needed the cotton so badly
3: the US was by far the largest supplier of cotton to the British textile industry in the 19th century and the outbreak of war in 1861. It doesn't immediately cause problems because there's quite a lot of cotton stockpiled in Britain, but from late 1861 into 1862, then the so-called cotton famine starts to set in and it causes horrendous economic problems across northern England. It throws thousands of people out of work in the textile mills of Lancashire and West Yorkshire. The trade did recover after the end of the American Civil War, but surprisingly slowly, it doesn't bounce back immediately. It's actually 1868 before the 1861 figure for imports into Britain from America is exceeded. So he's going into the cotton trade at a period when it's recovering from the impact of the war. Bob Carlyle's
1: ship, the SS Leaf, was part of the resurrection of that cotton trade. It's a little curious, though, that in newspaper reports that talk about his later career, he's often described as having served on a blockade runner. In other words, a British ship trying to get past the blockades when they are actually in operation. Dr Bob Nicholson is both an expert on Victorian newspapers and also on Anglo-American relations in the 19th century. During the
0: American Civil War in the 1860s, the north attempted to blockade all of the ports used by the southern states, the confederacy. And the idea there was that that they would prevent them from exporting their cotton to Britain and therefore bringing in the money. And they would also prevent them from importing weapons. The south really struggled because they didn't have the the kind of factories and manufacturers of the north. So in terms of fighting a war, if they were cut off from the sea, they were in trouble. But to break past it, a lot of British people sort of unofficially supported by the government, it's alleged, were blockade runners. In other words, ships that attempted to break through the fleets who were blockading these ports and to try and either get cotton and other goods out or to bring weapons in. So it's quite a a glamorous, high stakes, dangerous thing. Thousands of these ships were sunk or captured. It was by no means a a kind of friendly thing. It it was war. And so for Carlisle to claim that he was involved in that, it adds hugely to his legend. But I just don't think the dates add up. I mean, you know, the, the blockade ends with the Civil War in 1865. He couldn't have been there then. But I guess... 20, 30 years later, if he's telling that story, he maybe looks of a plausible age to be somebody involved, and and that's enough.
1: When Carlisle's cotton ship closed on the American coast, it found it hard to reach its final destination because of the old vessels that had been sunk by the Southerners to prevent the Northern warships from getting up to the town. When the ship did finally reach Savannah, Carlisle noted that there were hundreds of emancipated slaves in great distress who, through want of employment, were like to starve. He doesn't record his feelings about this, but he is positive about the white Americans he meets, as he states. My impression of the
2: Americans was, and is, that they are a real earnest lot, as when they work, they work at high pressure, and when they play, they go in for it thoroughly. In my opinion, Americans are Britishers fully developed, and I am sure every true American looks upon England as the mother country, and hundreds of American sons and daughters annually visit the old country and look upon the tombs of its famous men, its scenery, etc., with an air of reverence and respect.
1: Anyway, the point of that trip was to get cotton and bring it back to Liverpool. They loaded it up and just about made it home, despite stormy seas and an engine fire. Carlisle returned from that trip to America, perhaps a slightly changed man, with a newfound admiration for all things stateside. Or perhaps it's just an act he puts on in later life, after a short stop in Edinburgh, he was off again, this time on a schooner to Danzig on a trip to import wheat from the Baltic to London. Again there was a near miss, with the ship almost tipping over due to a rigging blunder off the Dogger bank. Carlyle, in his own words, was girded to jump overboard with a piece of wood as a float because he thought the ship was going to keel over. For a few years he was engaged in work on land as a railway guard, and then as a circus showman. And to that we will return. But in 1875, he was afloat once more, this time on board the Jane and Anne, taking those herrings to Hamburg. He was probably lucky to get a berth on the ship at all, because he recounts meeting the captain dressed as a showman, he had nothing else to wear. He had his long Chesterfield coat and a felt hat on. Perhaps he regretted his fortune later on, because as you'll recall, that trip was when he was nearly dashed to his death on the piers of Sunderland. It seems like Carlyle's sailing crew is one long succession of close calls with a watery grave. I wanted to get a sense of how dangerous a sailor's life was in the 19th century, so I called up Martin Wilcox once more.
3: Well, it's quite a hair-raising account, isn't it? Particularly the, the entrance into Sunderland, um, which is clearly an extremely dangerous moment. As he himself says, if the sails had blown out or the captain had got the steering wrong, then they were in serious difficulties. The point really is that seafaring under sail was very dangerous. There's a a commission on shipwrecks, a Royal Commission in 1836, and it estimates that about a thousand lives a year are being lost in shipwrecks around the British coasts seafaring is a dangerous business however you do it and under sail particularly especially because of a stormy weather but also the risk of a lee shore i.e where the ship is being blown on shore and a sailing ship has a relatively limited ability to to get off that most old sailors memoirs those who served in sailing ships will include at least one account of a truly hair-raising moment whether that was a lee shore an entrance to a harbour in particularly bad weather a storm broaching to which was where the ship sort of swung towards the wind and couldn't be controlled and that could bring the masts down or, or capsize the ship. So it's a fairly hair-raising account but it's also quite a common one and most people who went to sea at that time would have had an experience at some point in their career a little bit like that. It's interesting how blasé he is about it. I mean he talks about it Reading between the lines, it's a truly terrifying experience, but there's also an element of him just accepting the danger, and he knows that going to sea is dangerous, and to some extent people in the 19th century regarded going to sea in the same way as we do getting on an aeroplane. The chances of something going wrong are not particularly high, but if they do, your chances of surviving it are not particularly good.
1: After that harrowing episode, Carlyle again found land-based employment for a few years. But by the early 1880s, he was at sea once more, this time back on the Atlantic route, on the Virginian, which steamed from Liverpool to Boston and back with a cargo of cattle and sheep.
3: Livestock had been shipped before over relatively short distances in sailing ships, but steamships make much longer voyages possible. And the first experiments with transatlantic live cattle shipments start during the 1870s, so it is a growing branch of trade. And it's quite a controversial one right from the outset, partly because of the very high rate of losses of the animals, but also out of a concern for their suffering. And there's particular concern for animals being shipped as deck cargo. And that quite literally means animals tethered on the deck of the ship as it's going across the Atlantic. The dangers there are fairly obvious. Now, the ship that Carlisle went on, he makes reference to stalls having been fitted up in the tween decks, so the animals would have been stored below. But this is also problematic. There certainly were instances where the stalls were not strong enough and i i came across an instance where the stalls collapsed in a storm and according to the captain's account it took two days to get all of the, the crushed stalls and the carcasses because most of the animals were killed. Also, there were instances of ships having to seal off the ventilators and hatches in particularly heavy weather for the safety of the ship and their, their charges suffocating. So it's a, a very unpleasant business for all concerned, particularly for the unfortunate animals and frankly for the crew. Imagine sharing a cramped ship with dozens or hundreds of frightened or seasick cattle, pigs, sheep and so on. That would have been a pretty unpleasant experience as well. And one wonders who had to muck these animals out.
1: Following that, no doubt fairly unpleasant and uncomfortable voyage, Carlyle found work in much more salubrious circumstances on the transatlantic passenger liners to America, namely the Celtic and Kefalonia, of the Cunard and White Star lines, respectively. This was in 1882 and 83. So I wanted to know how far the transatlantic liner business was bedded in by this point. I asked Martin Wilcox.
3: Oh, very well established by the 1870s. The, the first regular transatlantic mail services with steamships start in 1840. At that point, it's not commercially viable. It's back to this thing about ships being very inefficient and expensive to operate and they're dependent on the government subsidy. And that's why the subsidy is for carrying the mail, which is why they have the designation RMS, Royal Mail Steamer. But from the 1850s onwards the costs start to drop and some ships start to operate without a subsidy and and by the 1870s the business is really pretty well established and the ocean liner as we understand it had come into being these are large fast steamships they're quite sort of luxuriously fitted out by the standards of the day I note his remark about city of Rome which he served on at one point having electric lights. And of course, this was very much the latest and the greatest, and very few ships would have had these. But the Atlantic liner shipping business is really the the prestige end of the industry, and it's where these innovations are being deployed first. So in a sense, he's ended up where a lot of sailors wanted to be at that time. He's on the most prestigious ships. And it would probably be fair to say that the food and the living conditions and so on would have been considerably better, certainly, than on that cattle boat or the unfortunate brig that he had such a hair-raising experience on coming back from Hamburg. So, yes, I think that the Atlantic liner business, it would have been a more comfortable life, although one suspects in some ways a more restrictive life. These liner firms, they have an image to keep up and they don't want their crews swearing, chewing tobacco and so on and so forth in front of the passengers. So one suspects he was probably under slightly stricter rules than he would have been in other parts of the industry. But it certainly was said and complained of in some quarters in the 19th century that the liner shipping business on the Atlantic and elsewhere It attracted the best crews and it left the rest of the industry, especially the sailing ships, it left them with the dregs and also increasingly with foreign sailors coming in to make up the deficiency.
1: So Bob Carlyle must have been a pretty handy sailor and he stayed on these transatlantic liners. He went on to join another liner, the SS City of Rome, and made eight voyages from Liverpool to New York through the course of 1885. He seems to have found the surroundings very much to his taste, but there was a tragic incident in June on his second crossing when the city of Rome collided with a French fishing vessel called the Georgette Jean, In an episode with, to me, overtones of the Titanic disaster to it, Carlyle recounts how they were passing a lot of icebergs in dense fog off Newfoundland en route to New York. The lookout did not see the French ship and it was struck and sank with 22 of the 24 sailors on board lost.
3: Well, The sea lanes in the 19th century were much more crowded than they are now there are a lot more ships moving around obviously also there's no radar there's no sort of modern navigation aids. the way of seeing a ship coming is by its lights and in thick weather it's by its foghorn but collisions were much more frequent than than they are now in terms of the disaster it puts me in mind not of the titanic but of the arctic disaster of 1854 when the transatlantic steamer a wooden paddle steamer ss arctic an american ship collides with another french ship on the grand banks a small iron steamer called the vesta which was servicing the fishing stations the French fishing stations on the Grand Banks and the Arctic sinks with the loss of about 350 lives um, Vesta is saved because it's an iron ship later collisions in particularly involving Atlantic liners and there were a few the result was as it was in this case I mean the Georges-Jean sank and most of the crew were killed. Collisions as I say were really quite frequent. Going back to the Titanic though I mean Carlisle mentions seeing icebergs and these were a frequent hazard on the Atlantic and Titanic was not the first steamship to hit an iceberg or first ship by any means to hit an iceberg. Indeed many of the disappearances of ships including the Arctic sister ship Pacific in 1856 that disappeared without trace on an Atlantic Voyage, and there was widespread suspicion that was an iceberg. The city of Rome itself hit one later in its career, and the ship Arizona in 1879 crashed head on into an iceberg at high speed and was actually able to continue its voyage. I think, if I remember rightly, it continued stern first, but it survived it, and that really served to boost confidence in steamships and perhaps to, to breed a certain amount of complacency, that and other things, which it really took the Titanic disaster in 1912 to dispel. The
1: SS city of Rome was laid up at the end of the year. Carlisle turned east as he signed up for work on Alfred Holt's China line. This was back to the cargo liner business, but without the live animals. The ship went through the Suez Canal and Red Sea to Hong Kong and China, bringing back a cargo of tea. Carlisle has much to say about the heathen Chinese, as he describes in his autobiography. He returned to Liverpool and then was off again to Shanghai, where he got dysentery and then Penang. Finally, he joined the SS merchant of the Harrison line, bound for Pernambuco in the Brazils, via Lisbon and Tenerife, where the crew loaded cotton for Liverpool. Bob Carlyle saw the world, and much of its produce, from the decks of the ships he worked on. His varied sailing exploits highlight the global nature of maritime trade in the period, but interestingly, doesn't cover that much of British imperial possessions. Let's hear a few more final thoughts from Martin Wilcox on how far Carlyle's career captures the spirit of the trading age.
3: Well, the fascinating thing about it is that so many of the trades he's involved in, in fact virtually all of them, are not imperial trades. He's going to Brazil, the United States, Northern Europe, places like that which are not part of the British Empire. So what I think it tells us really is about the sheer diversity of Britain's trading interests in the 19th century. It also speaks to the diversity of the cargoes that are being carried. And even in the present day, I mean 90% of imports still come by sea and everything from the clothes we wear to the computers we're using now have come by sea, but it, It's the same in the 19th century, he's involved in shipping everything from cattle to raw cotton to whatever was in the holds of the ships going to the Far East, which would have been mainly relatively small stuff. He speaks to the diversity of British trade in the 19th century, I think.
1: So it's a fascinating naval career that Carlisle enjoys, but as you've heard, there are considerable gaps in his sailing service when he was on land, getting involved in other adventures. Next time, we'll hear about some of those things he was getting up to. Namely, running away to the circus. That was episode two of History Extras, the tiger tamer who went to see. This is a History Extra production, researched, written and hosted by me, David Musgrove. My colleagues Rhiannon Davis, Ellie Cawthorn, Eleanor Evans and Rob Attar improved the script. Dr Bob Nicholson kindly gave it a read through and the producer was Jack Bateman. My experts in this series are Professor Valerie Sanders, Dr Bob Nicholson, Dr Anne-Marie McAllister, Dr Martin Wilcox, Dr John Wolfe, and Professor Dave Day. Thanks also to Sarah Williams, editor of Who Do You Think You Are magazine, for her help with untangling the genealogy. I'm also grateful to Chris godfrey Morell and Ken Bogle of Midlovian Council Library Service for helping to find the black collection in their archive. I owe thanks to Craig Statham, formerly of East Slovian Archives, and Hanita Ritchie in the John Gray Centre there, who helped me to track down some local records in East Slovian. Lisa D. Tomasso, librarian at the Murab Library in Penzance, and Linda Camage of the Penwith Local History Group were also generous with their time. The Museum of Cornish Life in Helston put me in touch with the wheelwright Terry Ansell, who helped me to understand more about Victorian wheelbarrows generally. Numerous other historians answered curious questions from me, including Dr. Richard Scully, Professor Nicholas Croson, Professor Rosalind Crone, and Dr. Vanessa Heggie. Finally, if you're interested in studying archive newspaper sources yourself, as a History Extra podcast listener, you can get a 10% discount on subscription to the British Newspaper Archive. Just go to britishnewspaperarchive.co.uk and use the code BNAHIST24 at checkout, and that offer is valid until 31 July 2024.